Perfect. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, Lon. Wow, looks like uh, Wednesday night church in here. And uh, good to see everybody, though. Thanks for coming to Wednesday night Bible study. No, I get it 100%. Uh, I'm tired. I got a head cold that won't leave me. And so uh, if I sneeze, uh, it probably will reach about halfway. So I won't point toward you. Uh, but man, battle a little bit of sickness. So I'm going to probably do my Wednesday night teaching voice instead of my Sunday morning preaching voice. But it's just good to see everybody here. What a great uh, Thanksgiving. Um, this was a uh, First time in history. Sorry for being personal here, but I got to show you. This is the first time I've ever gone, I've gone public with this. This isn't on social media yet, but I got to show you a quick picture. This was the first time all nine of my grandkids uh, were in the same spot at the same moment. That's my family. We're standing in our backyard out there. I apologize for the pool and the palm trees, uh, but that's, that's, um, that's for later in life. Um, but anyway, that's my, my uh, well, how do I do this? So, so Right to my left, right there, your right, is obviously Mrs. H and then Brianna, our daughter-in-law, um, and then their newborn little Emerson, and that's my youngest son, Spence, uh, Spencer, and then my next baby, there's babies everywhere, uh, that's little Tessa, and then that's my daughter, Jocelyn, she attended North Central, that's uh, her husband, Marcelo, from Brazil, and they just moved back from Brazil, and so at their feet right there is little Olivia, and uh, she speaks fluent Portuguese and English. I watched Rio 12 times over the holidays. <laughs> Rio 1, I saw 11 times, and Rio 2, I saw once, but I'm, I'm a Rio 1 fan. So, um, and then next to uh, Olivia, as we go down the front, that's little Spencer Jr., Spencer and Brianna's other little guy. And then in front of Mrs. H is Elias. He is um, uh, Spitfire. He is the son of Tyler and Nicole. I got my arm around Tyler and Nicole right there. And their little girl, Gemma and Elias right there, their brother, sister. They pastor a church in Oakland, California. I got to preach there last Sunday at Anthem Church at Oakland High School. And then moving to the very end is my uh, other son, Kramer, uh, and his beautiful bride, Becky. And their two boys in the front is Zachy and Eli, and then little baby Lydia is um, in her arms. So we have Lydia, Eli, Zachy, uh, Gemma, Elias, uh, Spencer, Je uh, uh, um, Olivia, Tessa, Emerson, and number 10 is on the way. I just can't tell you, but one of them in there is having another one. So, and, uh, but it's not Mrs. H. I, I, I wish it was Mrs. H. <laughs> Wouldn't that just be unbelievable if Karen got pregnant and just, you got to see all that happen right here. It's just like a Bible miracle of Old Testament proportions. <laughs> 12 leader. Daniel 5.12 says that Daniel had a keen mind and he was 85 when they said this to Daniel. So he wasn't 18, he was in his 80s. And he had built a reputation and he developed over time. He didn't deteriorate. And the whole goal is to keep developing, not develop and then peak and then deteriorate. I want to keep developing. I'm 57. I don't want to peak and then deteriorate. Um, I want to, to continue to grow. And so Daniel in his 80s, they said he had a keen mind at eight, in his 80s. Most scholars believe he was around 85 when this was said. And it says he can interpret dreams. He can explain riddles and he can solve difficult problems. If you can do those three things, you've heard me say it a hundred times, I'll say it a hundred more. If you can do those three things, 
you are going to have a high impact life if you can interpret dreams, see the future, be able to forecast the future, be able to explain riddles, which means like untangling a fishing line and then being able to, to uh, solve difficult problems, bringing civility to where there's enmity, man. Can you bring calm to it? And if you can do that, and I believe you can, and I believe that's why the Holy Ghost is in you, is to produce a Daniel 5.12 reputation in your life. That's what we're all aiming for in this, in this thing called NCU, this powerful incubator. So, okay, what I want to do uh, is we're going to be in the New Testament, the book of Acts, but before we go there, I just want to frame something uh, in worship. I was reminded of a verse of scripture in 1 Kings 17. It says, Elisha the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab the king, so he had access to, the, to, this, to this evil king, this king, and he said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years. And this extended drought, I mean, can you imagine by my word, being able to grab <coughs> uh, the climate and grab weather like a dial? And according to your word, it's going to rain or not rain? You're living pretty close to the Lord if you can command the skies, okay? You're kind of walking pretty close to God if the horizon bows to your authority. I mean, that's a pretty gutsy claim. You could say, hey, it's not going to rain tomorrow. But to say over the next several years, we're going to have drought because of my word. So the word of the Lord then came to him. Because the Lord wanted to see if Elijah could not only give a word, but could heed a word in his life. So the word of the Lord then came to him and he said, I want you to go away. And from here, turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook. It's very difficult when you've been sitting with kings and commanding the clouds to go hide yourself. Because you're going public at this point. I mean, you're... you're upper tier, desirable, conference speaker, person, go hide yourself? When you are walking this near to the Lord and have this kind of access to power, go hide yourself? It's a key to leadership. Key to, key to the kingdom is your ability <clears throat> to hide. You gotta hide. Hide yourself in the Lord. Go hide yourself at the brook Cherith east of the Jordan, it shall be that you will drink of the brook and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. It sounds romantic, but ravens are scavengers and they pick flesh from dead animals and they would carry the flesh in their beak and deliver you meat from the beak of a scavenger. It's not like somebody handing you some nice hot fries from In-N-Out or something. Uh, In-N-Out, do we have In-N-Out here? Oh, we have... It's about three blocks from that pool you saw in that picture right there. So I just wanted to let you know that's right there. But getting meat from the beak of a bird is not exactly living your best life now. And he says, you're going to drink water from the brook like an animal. You're going to get on all fours and, and then a bird's going to bring you meat. Did you like that? That was impressive. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Would you? Would you, would I, 
respond that fast to the call to go hide yourself. Uh, and you've been dialoguing with the king. Wicked, but the king. And you have commanded the clouds and now you're at the mercy of a bird bringing you carcass meat in his beak. That's not a fun place to hide. And this is all um, out of volition or obedience and no one's forcing him to do any of this. He's hiding. And it says, the ravens brought him bread and meat morning and evening and he would drink from the brook it happened after a while. So this was a lifestyle for a period of time. It happened after a while. There was no definitive, I need you to do this till next Monday. And then you're grinding and hanging on and count, looking at the clock to next Monday. It's just after a while. There was no clue on when the brook would dry up. So the Bible says <coughs> it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord said, go to Zarephath, which was the real destination. The real assignment is Zarephath. And I'm telling everybody in this room, God has Zarephath in front of you. You're going to go through this other thing for a period of time, for a while. You go through this other space for a while. This space between the exterior of leadership and the interior of leadership, this the space that is hard to describe between exterior and interior. You, you're on the outside and then you're going to be on the inside, but you're in this space for a while of your life. You know, I was sitting here this morning thinking back to conversations with my sons and daughters. I was sharing this with somebody. I said, you know, the, the greatest gift you're going to give your kids. I don't say this because every time we, a preacher says anything like this, it triggers Sadness. This isn't to trigger sadness. This is to inspire hope. And I mean that with all my heart. Because I did not come from the family that I was raised in. I came from them biologically. But my, my next family, it looks nothing. Nothing like my childhood. Zero. So I'm not just, oh yeah, you just replicate. No. Key people who are not biological relatives of mine stepped into my life and were so compelling. Coaches, teachers, youth pastors, senior pastors. Some key men in my life stepped in and became so compelling, it just jerked me and yanked me out of the cycle that I was destined for without Christ and without the church. So the mentors... They literally picked me up and took me into a new zone, a new domain of my life. I'm very grateful to God for them. One day maybe I'll tell you about those five people in my life and how it actually happened. But I remember meeting Karen and I see that picture of our kids and our grandkids and it's, I stare at it and I go, how did this happen? How did this happen? And I was just at the funeral for a man. He died at 92. You should have seen it. He had five kids up there. and He has 21 grandkids and 35 great-grandkids. And you should have seen this man's life over the holidays at the funeral. 
He bought me my first suit when I was a kid as a youth pastor because I didn't have a suit to wear to church. And he died and they told his life story. And I didn't know this, that when he was seven, his mom died up in Spokane, Washington. And dad couldn't take care of him. So I put him on a bus and sent him to an auntie's house in Berkeley, California, poor as could be. And when we were all done and they had the five kids and their spouses and 21 grandkids who were all in their 30s and 40s now. And then 30 plus great grandkids who were all between age about 10 and, and 20 themselves, they're all on video. It was shocking to see it. And I, I was done at the funeral. I walked away go, so this was really all about a seven-year-old kid whose mom died in Spokane. How do you go from being a seven-year-old kid without a mama, put on a train to an auntie's house, and that happens? Well, I'm beginning to get, to get a little glimpse of that at this stage of my, my life. And I was in worship today sitting over there thinking about you. Because I've had two fundamental questions answered for me that most of you in this room have not had answered yet. Here's the two fundamental questions. I know what I'm going to do. And I know who I'm going to do it with. I'm, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a youth pastor for seven years. I'm going to plant a church in Elk Grove and be there 11 years. And I'm going to go to Michigan for five. And then I'm going to plant another church for 11. And then I'm going to become the president of North Central University. I actually know at this point what I've done or what I was going to do. I know enough of that now. And the other bigger question is, who am I going to do it with? Who's this mystery person that I'm going to do this with? The mystery person is sitting right there. And I thought about powerful prophecy Ebony shared. And I thought about where you stand on the precipice of history by faith, not knowing quite yet what am I supposed to do and who am I supposed to do it with? Some of you have half of that equation answered. Some of you kind of go what your next step is. Some of you know who the love of your life is. We got married at 19 and 20. It happened very, very, no, not in 1920. Uh, <laughs> when I was 19 and she was 20. So Zarephath has been somewhat clear to me. Now watch this real quick. Zarephath has been clear to me. Um, <clears throat> I went through some Brook Cherith where you get reduced. And then you go to this place called Zarephath and there's a notorious story there. What's the notorious story? He goes to Zarephath. There's a widow there, which means her husband's dead. She has no food because he says, go make me a bread cake. She goes to get him water. While she's getting the water, he says, please bring me a piece of bread. And she said, I have no bread. Not only do I not have a husband, I have no bread. This is a notorious story. Not only does she have no husband and no bread, she has no hope because her and her son are preparing to die. Now, when you're past as hell, 
husband's dead, present conditions held, your, your cupboard's empty, and your future's held, your son's dead. And everything around you just speaks of darkness and lostness and the enemy and theft in your life. And somebody steps into that scene and tells you what the word of the Lord is to do. Where did Elijah get this level of faith to step into the notorious story? So in the New Testament, there's a notorious sinner. Last Sunday, I had a chance to preach for my son Tyler at Oakland High School in downtown Oakland, California, not Oakland, Kansas. This is Oak, Oaktown, California. The previous week, I had the joy of preaching for Sam Rodriguez uh, at New Seasons. Just tremendous last couple Sundays. But when I was in Oakland on Sunday, I thought about the notorious reputation of Oakland, California. And I kind of begged my son, don't go to Oakland. Don't do it. Don't do it, son. Go to, go to Kansas. Go somewhere else for a warm-up. Get your, get your muscles. Get your leadership momentum. Then maybe tackle Oakland, California. Because in the last 40 years, I have not seen nor heard of one successful church being planted in four decades in Oakland, California. Though the woman that spoke our school into existence, Lillian Yeoman, in 1929, four blocks from here, told the pastor, Frank Linquist, you need to start a school, a Bible school. That was the start of North Central, Lillian Yeomans. Her greatest revival was in Oakland, California. Maria Wadsworth Eder, greatest, her greatest revival, Oakland, California. Amy Simple McPherson, one of the greatest revivals in all of America was in Oakland, California. She actually died there in her sleep. But Oakland, a hundred years later, which is now, is a notorious community. And I said, Tyler, I've been praying, God Almighty, how's he going to reach the notorious city of Oakland? And the Lord dropped this in my heart about the notorious salvation of Saul. I want to give you five simple things about Saul. How did Saul get saved? The notorious sinner named Saul, Acts 9, who participated in the killing of a Christian, who secured paperwork, official government paperwork, to go drag Christians out by their hair, persecute them, incarcerate them, ultimately kill them as Stephen was killed. How does that guy get saved? Because I don't know about you. People feel far more lost today than they did 30 years ago. Like people are so lost. They think lost. They talk lost. They reason lost. They, everything is up like, are you serious? Right is left, up is down. How do we witness and how does that person get saved? Well, let's look at Stephen or, or, or the Apostle Paul. Number one is this. First thing is Stephen the exemplar. Who's Stephen the exemplar? Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through Acts 8, 1 through 3. He's the one who died from stoning. I actually met a man who was stoned recently, not in a 1970s context, but somebody that actually was stoned like Stephen, and he escaped. His name's Pastor Meg Garung. He's one of my great friends. He became the first Christian in his village in Nepal, and 30 years ago, they stoned him, and he escaped, uh, but he was brutally wounded by the stoning. So this stuff still goes on today. So the Bible says that Stephen is being stoned. It's a powerful, iconic uh, pivot point in the New Testament in Acts 7. 
And there's a little drawing that I threw together real quick. No, I didn't draw that. Um, <coughs> I just sketched it out this morning. Um, <coughs> Stephen, it says, they laid their coats. The people stoning Stephen laid their coats and kept uh, them with Saul of Tarsus. And then it says that he heartily approved of this. And then it goes on to say that he sought paperwork from the high priest to go and hunt down more Christians. So what role did Stephen play in the salvation of Saul of Tarsus or Paul? Saul wasn't saved in this scene. But here's what Stephen, here's the role he played and here's the role you and I have to play in the upcoming epic called this culture of this world. Here it is. Paul, for the first time, saw out of the corner of his eye a kind of Christian he had never seen. The salvation of a notorious sinner requires that they come across people they have never met before. He saw in Stephen, and when Stephen preached a profound message, they stoned him, and Stephen dies with a memory verse on his lips. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He plagiarizes Jesus in his final breath. Can you imagine dying with a memory verse on your lips? Saul of Tarsus is over in the shadows with the coats. But trust me, he saw the exemplar, the example of a kind of Christian that he probably never knew existed. Someone who could not be touched by pain and persecution and threat. Someone who would not bow their knee to the religious and the Pharisees of their day. And remember, the Pharisees, friends, are not all inside the church. Pharisees are, it's the government. It's self-righteousness. It's people that tell you how to live one way. We just think Pharisees are all inside the church. Most of the Pharisees are outside the church. They're pseudo-religious, self-righteous people that operate in entertainment. They operate in media, the news. These are where the Pharisees operate, friends. And so Stephen is stoned to death, and the Apostle Paul sees somebody he has never seen before, and trust me, friends, the imprint never left him. If we're gonna lead notorious people to Christ, they gotta see a kind of Christianity that they've not seen before. It won't be their salvation moment, but it will be a profound, lasting impact in their life. You're gonna go to communities, you have to live a sacrificial life in such a way that non-Christians go, I haven't met a Christian like you. I haven't seen that operate like that. If, we don't, if we're not Stephen, we'll never see the notorious safe. Secondly is this, real fast. Uh, musicians, why don't you guys come back up? We're going to transition to prayer in a moment. The second thing that, that Saul saw was this. He saw what I call the messenger. Next slide, if you will. The Holy Spirit's the messenger. Road to Damascus. Here we go, folks. Road to Damascus is a work of the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus Christ to Saul of Tarsus. It was activity. It was powerful, heavenly kingdom activity apart from human beings doing it. So if we don't have the Holy Spirit 
working in our cities, the notorious will never be saved. Notorious cities will never come to Christ. What do I mean by that? It means that while we're not in the presence of people preaching, teaching, modeling, loving, serving, washing feet, the Holy Spirit has been welcomed in such a way through your prayer life, through your worship life, through faith, that the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus in dreams, encounters of the supernatural, that do not require preachers and teachers. Notorious communities and sinners will not be saved unless the Lord is moving on your behalf, but on his own in the heart of that person. So Saul of Tarsus ultimately is, encounters Jesus without a preacher. What does that mean for you and I? It means that we better have the Lord in our midst. He better be welcomed and Free to work in our midst because there's a, a stewarding church and believer nearby that can pick up the work of the Holy Spirit apart from the preaching and the teaching. Notorious sinners and notorious cities will never be shaken unless the Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit is doing all over the world in the Middle East where preachers and missionaries are not allowed to get into. Jesus is appearing in dreams to people. If we don't have that happening. And then here's the third thing that led to Saul of Tarsus' salvation and to his release of leadership. This number three was Ananias. I call Ananias the courageous. The Lord told Ananias simultaneously to the Lord's visitation on the road to Damascus. He said, I want you to go to Straight Street. And I want you to put your hands on this guy and pray for him. And he said, no way, Hose. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to put my hands on that. I'm terrified of that. I'm not going to touch that. And you see, the notorious will never be saved, will never be transformed unless you and I are willing to touch things that the church is terrified to touch. Somebody has to be courageous in the equation here. There has to be an Ananias in inside me at times he went and touched and prayed for Saul his scales fell and he was strengthened then the fourth of the five is this so you have the exemplar Stephen you have the messenger the Holy Spirit you have the courageous and the brave in Ananias and then you have the advocate in Barnabas after Saul is saved and the scales fall from his eyes, no one in the church wanted him a part of them. He was an outsider. He was on the exterior. And a man named Barnabas came and was a conduit and was an advocate to the biblical community, to other disciples to say, no, we've got to welcome him and accept him. Somebody has to play that role. And would you become the advocate for the person or the place or the thing that people are terrified of. And without the advocate, that notorious sinner would never uh, have the impact that we live and breathe in his impact today. And the last thing is this, and we're going to pray, is there's the protege. So when you look at the life cycle of a church, the life cycle of leadership, I got to live my life like Stephen. I got to be the Christian that they have never seen before. I got to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit apart from my preaching and teaching 
that is revealing Jesus to the hearts of lost people. I gotta be courageous and touch stuff and go first and touch some stuff that everybody else is afraid to touch. And I've gotta be an advocate and I've gotta be a conduit and help the church welcome a converted, he's not the same person, he's been converted from his sin and forgiven of his sin. And but the church is afraid and doesn't know what to do with this outsider that they have invested so much of their thinking in opposition to. How do I create biblical love when I've invested so much of my thinking that this is an outcast, someone to be avoided? So the advocate Barnabas, the encourager, creates the conduit, it makes the introductions. Let's welcome this person. And then the protege is Timothy. Acts 16, he takes a young guy from a imperfect upbringing. He fills in the gaps of really a fatherless young man named Timothy. Pours his burden into him because you can't impart your gifts. Gifts come from God, but burden comes from the mentor to the protege. And he puts inside Timothy a heart and Timothy becomes the protege. So when I look at notorious sinners in notorious cities, I see all of these elements alive. And I just want us to be biblically aware of these different contributions to Saul's salvation, his new faith, and ultimately his eternal impact as an apostle through the lives of other leaders that he has raised up. I want us to pray and I just want us to ask the Lord help me to be aware of all these steps and stages Lord because all of us participate at different levels sometimes sometimes you plant stuff sometimes you build stuff and sometimes you bless stuff you plant you build and you bless you're going to do all three of those things constantly in your life you'll be the first one to plant it somebody else plant it you're going to build it somebody else will build it now you're going to bless it smile on it write a check for it encourage it, pat them on the back, pray. Sometimes you go first and plan it. Sometimes you got to be the builder of it. All of those things are going on simultaneously in different ways in your life. Let's live like Stephen. Let's welcome the work of the Spirit, like the road to Damascus. Let's be brave like Ananias and be the first to touch things that everybody's afraid of. Let's be a conduit and an advocate to help outsiders become part of biblical community. Let's make the introductions and let's commit our life to raising up protégés that will water this earth for Jesus. Let's all stand together, friends. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you came to chapel today. Look, I think our crowd got bigger, I think. You, look, you just look bigger standing, I guess. Man, the Lord is good. You know, I used to joke with my students when I was a youth pastor. They go, I got to get out. Got to get out. I got to go. There. What do you got to I got to go. I got to get over there. I got to leave and go do what? I got to go over there and stand. All you're going to do over there is stand. Why don't you just stay in here and stand? I got to get somewhere and stand. <laughs> so I want to encourage you. Think about where you have to go next. Is it really like I just got to get to a different location to go stand?
and sit and talk. Could I take a few moments of my life this morning and seek the Lord? I would like to invite our faculty that are here today. If you would come and stand across the front of our staff that is here, that is willing and able to pray. And, and um, if you could do that across the front for a few moments across the front. And any of the students in here, we're going to go to worship. If you would like one-on-one prayer with someone, they're going to hang here for a few minutes, not the entire hour, but <clears throat> or to 12.30, but for a few minutes. And if you can be here for a few moments and you want personal prayer, you just come and find them. If not, just come up here and we're going to worship God and get on our knees before the Lord on this Wednesday. And uh, we'll see. We're doing Wednesdays this year. We may go Friday. We're, we're still kind of toying with how we're going to do this. We're still experimenting. But this year it's Wednesdays. And if you could stick and pray for a little bit, seek God and just say, Lord, send me to a notorious city, first of all, Lord. It may be a small rural town in Kansas or Nebraska that is so filled with meth and, and domestic violence, that little town of 2000, that cannot find a godly pastor to be interested in it. Maybe God is going to send you there for your whole life. How wonderful would that be? Maybe God is going to send you to New York City or to Miami, to Houston. It doesn't matter if it's overseas, big city, or the middle of a cornfield. People are perishing Zarephath. And the Lord wants you to go to notorious places to make a kingdom impact that you never saw coming. But you got to commit. I'm going to live like Stephen. I'm going to be the Christian that those people have never met before, seen out of the corner of their eye, like, whoa, wow. Guy's dying and he's quoting scripture. And all these other points, just let them become points of prayer and seeking of the Lord. So we're going to begin to worship. I want to invite you to these altars, invite you to hang. I know many of you get together with your floors, your groups, your circles. That is powerful. Do that, whatever it is. But if you want personal prayer, our team is here to pray for you. We love you. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. As we transition now, God, into some worship and prayer, God, I pray you would just take over this room in a powerful and mighty way in Jesus' name. These altars are open. Come for prayer, worship. If you can stick for a few minutes, I invite you to do it. Let's seek him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.